from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Hear the word of the Lord. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Let's pray. Father, we have just heard your word. It is pure and true and good. It has been preserved because it is profitable. Your word equips us for every good thing. All that we need to know in it for salvation is abundantly and clearly provided. Father, it is purer than gold put through the furnace seven times. We come to listen and to understand and to heed this word because it comes with the authority of heaven. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray in humility your Holy Spirit to reign over the preaching of the word today. That I would preach carefully and clearly and with the conviction that is in the text. And that we would hear, that we would hear with intensiveness not given to distraction, not pursuing multitasking, but, Father, sober-minded, seeking to lay into our minds and plant into our hearts your word, which is life. Father, give us the energy by your grace for this holy endeavor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I just have a simple question to start, to ask. How good is God's forgiveness? How good is God's forgiveness? I know we all know the Sunday school answer. I know what you have immediately to say. It's good. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we look back on the trials and the and the difficulties and the hang-ups and the anxieties of our lives of last week, if we were to review the thoughts that woke us up in the middle of the night, the fears, the pangs of guilt, the shameful memories, that perhaps we, ha- we have a tendency to forget how good is God's forgiveness. 
Perhaps we see God's forgiveness as only really applying to then, to that day, to my ticket to heaven, and, and it doesn't seem to make much application today. Knowing that we are forgiven in heaven, what does it mean for me on earth? I think we tend not to think about God's forgiveness and, and dwell upon its richness and its savors like we should. I think we simply give God's forgiveness a short sell much of the time. And yet, I am certain, because I include myself in this statement, that you are in constant struggle with sin's power, with sin's guilt, with sin's shame upon your life. And if that describes you, then you need to remember the gospel's forgiveness. And you need to set your sights on how good is God's forgiveness. And that is what Paul wants to make clear to us in this, in this paragraph, which I would submit to you is probably the most elegant and, and elevated statement of our forgiveness in Christ that you can find in Scripture. And so I hope today you become delighted and fascinated and restful in God's forgiveness. Not just for today, but that it would spill into every day. Paul follows this passage right after what he dealt with last week. We, we, we delved into Paul's uh, 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 warning against the false teaching of, I can, by reminding us that no, the gospel is through and through, he can. We saw that, that, that in, in he can, we are set free. Whereas in I can, we are imprisoned. And as we come to the subject of forgiveness, that idea of feeling imprisoned versus feeling set free is brought to the fore. We struggle with the prisons of our sin. But today, Paul wants us to see in Christ, you are utterly and fully set free because you are fully forgiven. This week... To summarize this passage, it's this. The gospel fully forgives every believer. And so if you are struggling with sin, if you are struggling with unforgiveness in your life, give yourself to this message. Because in this message, forgiveness is proclaimed. How does the gospel fully forgive every believer? As we go through this text, we're going to see three ways. We're going to see that it fully forgives us by freeing us from our sins. That it forgives us by expunging all of our guilt. That it forgives us by vanquishing every accuser. Let us look now at that first way the gospel fully forgives. It fully forgives by freeing us from our sins. Let us hear again verses 11 and 12. Paul says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now that is a complex couple sentences. Actually, it's one. <laughs> it's a complex passage. It's, it's classic Paul. He is, he is working with, with several ideas and, and, and braiding them together in unique combinations to bring out deeper resonances of the gospel. It deals with circumcision and, and baptism, body and flesh, resurrection. There's a lot in this passage. So let me just give you the gist of it, what Paul is saying in these two verses. He is saying that through faith alone, in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are set free from our sins. Paul is, going, is using in this passage the symbols of circumcision and baptism to illustrate what has been done to make us his. So let's go into this detail. And let's talk about the references to circumcision and baptism. Uh, when we see these uh, phrases, circumcision and baptism, first of all, those were signs to the covenant community of belonging to God. That's what circumcision stood for. That's what baptism stands for. It stands for belonging to God. They are signs. They are symbols. Augustine calls them visual words. What they do is they uh, depict visually what it means to belong in the covenant to God. When we look at circumcision specifically, circumcision uh, means to cut. I had several pictures prepared, but I decided I'm just going just to use words. It means to cut, all right? And it is a, it is a not to put a, a sore point on it, it is a, uh, it is a sign that is given to the, the males in the family uh, that they are belonging to God. But the idea of cut uh, is, to, is to communicate that in circumcision, you are declaring and showing that you have been separated to God and separated from sin. Another way of saying that is you have been separated to God who is life, and then you have been separated from uh, disobedience or, or, or death. So the idea is that the part that stays is separated to God. The part that leaves represents what is separated to death. Baptism has very much the same terrain. It uh, is a visual word of the death and resurrection. So in baptism, we have that we have been buried. We are dead to sin but then we are also raised that we are alive to God. And so we have uh, dead to sin and life to God. That's what baptism does. So when you look at Colossians 2, Paul brings baptism and circumcision side by side. And when we recognize what baptism and circumcision is, we see that they, they cover much the same terrain. In fact, Baptism represents in the new covenant what circumcision did in the old covenant. Both uh, signs basically said that you are inside the covenant and therefore have faith and life, 
or you're outside the covenant and live in sin and death. So they both uh, operate to communicate the same thing of belonging to the covenant, which is life, or being outside the covenant, which is death. Now, it's key, as we, as we finish this very didactic section, this teaching section, that these are symbols. When we talk about circumcision and baptism, they are symbols. It's, it's not the cutting of the flesh. It's not the water that, that gives them any power. It is that they represent not them in themselves. It's, it's that these signs and these symbols, they represent what he has done, not what we do. I.e., in, in baptism and circumcision, it, they are signs that declare very much, he can, not I can. And here's how I want you to see that. They display Christ. Let's look again at verses, the last half of verse 11 and 12. We see that by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, Paul is recapping the gospel story. He is recapping that our Lord died was buried, and was raised. That's the formula when you go to 1 Corinthians 15. He says, here's the gospel, that Christ died for sins, that he was buried, that he was raised. Paul is, is doing that here in, 1 Corinthians, or in, in Colossians. We see very clearly he references burial and he references resurrection. But you might be saying, well, okay, yeah, I see the burial and, and I see the resurrection, but I don't exactly see where Paul references Christ's death. How is Christ's death being described in in this passage? Well, if we look more carefully at verse 11, where it says the circumcision of Christ, and when we recognize that it is fitting into that pattern of death, burial, and resurrection, we ask ourselves the question, what is Paul saying when he says the words, the circumcision of Christ? And when we think about it, we recognize that the circumcision of Christ is in the location of the, the meaning of death in this um, uh, presentation of the gospel. How, how then does circumcision of Christ refer to his death? If you go back to Isaiah chapter 53, which is the, uh, one of the most important chapters of describing the passion of Christ, you are told that when Christ, the suffering servant, died, this is what happened. Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Does that help us see where the circumcision of Christ is a reference to death, because in circumcision, that that is cut off is dead. And we are told in Isaiah 53 that when Christ goes to his passion, he is cut off. He takes the punishment side of the seal and sign of circumcision. So when Paul says the circumcision of Christ, he is metaphorically describing Christ's bloody death, 
his being cut off as the payment for the disobedience of the covenant community. So, what is all this worthwhile for? Notice that what this means is that like Christ took the real burial symbolized by baptism, he took the real separation, the real cutting off that is symbolized by circumcision. So then, all of that is interesting. How then does believing in Christ free us of sin? How is Paul using all of this to show us that we are freed of sin? And it's this simple fact. It's that we are being united to Christ. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. Do you see the phrase in him in verse 11? And then with him in verse 12, uh, the first part. And then with him again in the second part of verse 12. Those phrases in him, with him, with him are references to union to Christ. You see what circumcision and baptism meant was belonging, belonging to what has been fulfilled in Christ. And so Paul is saying that when you are with him, you have what he has done credited to you. So here's where where we are going. When we, we see these words with him, we are recognizing union to Christ. What is union to Christ? Union to Christ is just like the the meaning of marriage, being united to one another. When we are being told that we are united to Christ, we are basically being told we have been married to Christ. We've been married by faith, which is to say that, that like in marriage, we have been joined to Christ. And the part that we always forget in the wedding day is it's, it's not just about the love. It's about the merging of the two lives And all of a sudden, you wake up the next day, and you've doubled your student debt. And your mortgage got twice as big. Those are parts of marriage. Everything becomes shared and combined with the words, I do. And so when we talk about union to Christ, we are saying that by faith, you have put yourself into Christ, and Christ has put himself to you so that all of your assets... And all of your debits are now shared. So in union to Christ, what it means is that he takes your death for your disobedience. And then you receive his life in his resurrection. So all of your sins go to him and all of his life goes to you. This is made explicit by Paul in the sixth chapter of Romans where he says in verses five through eight, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
You see, union to Christ means that all of the debits of our sin are cashed in on Christ's death. And all of the rewards of his righteousness and resurrection is given to us as we share in it with him. So what does this mean for us as we think about our forgiveness? Because we have been united with him, we are freed from our sins. Here's what it means. In Christ, the final word to your sins is this. Dead and buried. And the final word to you is alive with him forever. Simply by being united to Christ, his death declares death on your sins. And his life declares presence and glory and joy and inheritance with him forever. You are fully forgiven because you do not belong to sin but to Christ. You have been freed from your sin. That's number one. We have been freed from our sins. But number two, I know that I know that point number one was going to be abstract. It was going to be more theoretical for you. But number two, I believe, is where the emotional punch really lives. Number two, we know that we are fully forgiven by the gospel because it expunges all of our guilt. You know what the word expunge means? Expunge is, is in, a, in a legal situation where your crime, your record is blotted out. It's wiped from memory. Some of us have paid a handsome sum to traffic lawyers to expunge our mistakes on the road. But what Paul is saying is that in the gospel, your guilt to God is expunged. Think about this. Christ's death removes our guilt because by it, God forgives authoritatively, extensively, intensively, and eternally. Let's look at each of those. God forgives authoritatively. Look at verse 13. It comes with a punch. It says that we are dead in our trespasses. We are dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. What that says is that we are totally dead spiritually. Our sins have made us uncircumcised to God. That means cut off outside of his life. We are dead, and that is where we live helplessly and hopelessly, dead in sin. Why are we dead in sin? Because any time we sin, any time we participate in what is wrong, we have sinned against a holy God. As David reckoned in his psalm of repentance, as he was aware of all that he had done, in sin to Bathsheba and Uriah and the nation of Israel, he was able to say this in Psalm 51.4, Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You see, in every sin and every transgression, the victim is not simply you or someone else. 
the, the, the person who is always grieved by every act of disobedience is God. Because every single one of those is a violation of his righteousness and a staining of the world that he created very good. And so sin is always against God. And as a sinners, that puts us in a place of being dead and uncircumcised. We are cut off and cut away. And that leaves us hopeless. But the forgiveness that we have in the gospel is authoritative. It comes from God. Because look at where verse 13 goes. But God made alive. Not cooperated with us, not kind of tugged at us, not gave us a little kick at the side of the coffin and said, get up. No, because we're dead. We can't respond. But God, who is rich in mercy to our dead spiritual selves, by nothing in us, by no cooperation, by no power to even participate, made us alive. It is the same miracle that you are a Christian that Jesus is not in the tomb. Because in that sense, God took a physical dead body and made it alive. In the same sense, when he forgives you, he takes a spiritually dead person and makes it alive. You have experienced, by God's grace, Forgiveness that is nothing short of a miracle. And the most important thing for us is that this forgiveness comes from God. The way we know that we are forgiven is because of the resurrection that declares all the sins placed on Christ have been paid in full. And that message comes from God, the one whom we have sinned against. And so when we know that we have been made alive, we know that we have been forgiven by the only authority who can truly forgive us of sins, and that is God. So authoritatively. But next, we have been forgiven extensively. Look again at verse 13. All our trespasses are forgiven. All. If you write in your Bible, circle that. All of them. Every sin, every disobedience, every transgression. The habitual ones, the small ones, the big embarrassing ones, the secret ones. And you want to know something else? Even the ones you haven't yet committed. They are all laid upon Christ. They are all forgiven The forgiveness of the gospel is extensive. It covers over every sin of your life. Nothing falls outside of it. All means all. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time, which includes the future until he returns, A single sacrifice for sins. His single sacrifice forgives all the sins that are committed by his people from the beginning of time to the end of time. Even the ones yet committed. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he did what? He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work of forgiving us for our sins is finished. He's the only priest that has ever enjoyed a break. Because every other priest had to get back up and do it again. But he sits because his work is finished. So we are forgiven extensively. But next, we are forgiven intensively. Meaning that it goes all the way. All the way down. It's not just a a wallpapering of your sin. It is a complete expunging of the record of your sin. This is a fascinating, staggering concept. Look at at verse 14. Look at verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. The record. What, What is this record? Every single one of us should be terrified that we are just told in Scripture that our sins have been recorded. They are on record. They have been written down. The scariest paragraph in all of Scripture is Revelation chapter 20, 11 to 15, where the Apostle John writes, Then I saw a great white throne, And him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Of fire. There is a record of our sin. They're filling books. And when judgment comes, the books get opened. The debt of our disobedience is, is incalculable. Jesus tells us a parable in, in Matthew 18 of a man who had basically trillions of dollars in debt to the king. And that was figuratively representing our debt to God. Our debt is incalculable. And so Paul is saying that we have this record of debt. He is basically saying that you have this IOU attached to yourself that lists all the ways you departed and fell short of the glory of God. It is an IOU that is accurate. And you will not be able to stand before it and say, you know what, I don't think that one's right because the recorder of it is the holy judge. 
You have this IOU. It's like in the, the, um, the, the story, A Christmas Carol, Marley visits Scrooge with a chain wrapped around, and he says, this chain, each length I have forged in my life from everything that I did that was wrong, every goodness that I passed over. These images are not just made up. They find their source in Holy Scripture. But, I love the word but in Scripture. It is canceled. It is canceled. The word used here means obliterated, means wiped away, means expunged. So there is no record. That is what Paul says. Listen to these verses, Micah 7.19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Oblivion. Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. East and west never meet. So they are infinitely separated from us in God's forgiveness. Isaiah 1.18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. These are the promises of of the forgiveness that God has for us. But it gets richer. It gets richer. It's more than just that they have been separated. The scriptures say God forgets them. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 34, the description of the new covenant which Christ fulfills We hear these words, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. The omniscient God promises in the new covenant to forget your sins. Do not remember them. How mind-boggling. How? I mean, we should all be asking, how? God can't just overlook. How can he forget what I have done? How can he forget those things? I can't forget them. How can he forget them? Well, that's because our forgiveness is not just intensive, it's eternal. How is the record expunged? How are our sins forgotten? Look again at verse 14, the last half. This, the record, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
the record he set aside, nailing it to the cross. R-I-O-U was nailed to the cross. It was displayed on the cross, this one debt-free, this one record clear. How? How was it nailed to the cross? There's only one cross that we can be thinking about here. The cross that our record was nailed to was the cross of Christ. And read the Gospels. There was no document nailed in, uh, in that crucifixion scene that had our sins written on it. There was no paper that, that listed my sins. So what does Paul mean when he says that my record has been nailed to the cross? There was only one thing nailed to the cross that day, and that was Jesus. What Paul is saying is staggering. He is saying that our ledger was cleared by God writing upon his own son our transgressions. Our ledger is emptied because Christ took those records upon himself Christ was made our record. Christ was the thing nailed. Christ was your IOU nailed to the cross. One of the most staggering verses in all of Scripture is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, which tells us... Let me turn to it because I didn't put it in my notes. I, I have it memorized, but I just don't want to do that. Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ, the sinless righteous one, was made our IOU. He was made our sin when he was nailed to the cross. How can the righteous one become our sin? But that is what happened on the cross. Our book was Christ on the cross. And so this is why we can say we are expunged of all our guilt. We have been cleansed by Christ's blood. Listen to Revelation chapter 7, 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. White in Christ. God can't see your sins. He can't even remember them. Why? Because in Christ, they have been obliterated. They have been completely taken away. In Christ, God can only see you as whiter than snow. 
Because all of your record has been expunged when Christ was nailed to the cross. My friends, my beloved, in Christ you are fully forgiven. Your guilt is expunged authoritatively, extensively, intensively, and eternally. And yet that is just one and two. Three. You are, the gospel fully forgives every, every believer by vanquishing every accuser. The cross of Christ vanquishes every accuser. When we sin, we give power to the accuser, to Satan, to evil beings, to come and accuse us. A scene of this is given to us in the book of Zechariah where the high priest Joshua is seen in a vision. And we're told in Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 and 3, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. You understand what's happening there. Joshua, the high priest, the the most righteous person in the land, is yet covered in filthy garments. He is unclean. He cannot be in the presence of holiness. And who is going to make sure that is clearly known? The accuser who is going to point at the filth and the stain and the dirt and the pollution and make it very clear that Joshua does not belong before God. And that is what the accuser does with every one of our sins. He foams up our shame. He foams up our fear. He is the voice in the middle of the night that says, remember. He is the voice that whispers, Shame on you. He is the voice that says, you cannot be forgiven for this. And I am certain many of us, if not all of us, have been haunted by that voice. How can we stand before that accuser who knows our book and points it out to us at our weakest moment? How can we stand Beloved, we stand at the cross. Verse 15 says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The cross disarmed our accusers. How? Because in his death, Christ conquered them. There's a a YouTube video of a gigantic python who decides that he's going to eat an alligator. And he works to swallow and engorge this gigantic alligator. He has got the big meal. But the end of the scene is that the, the python explodes because the meal was too big. The alligator actually destroyed the python. In the, in the act of trying to kill the alligator, the alligator kills the python. The metaphor, the story is exactly what happened on the cross. You see, we are told in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that there would come the Messiah, the offspring of the woman, and that the offspring of the snake would come and there would be this battle 
And in that battle, the snake would bruise the heel of the Messiah, cause an injury to the Messiah. But at the same time, the snake's head would be crushed. That is fulfilled in the cross. Christ's death was evil, working to destroy him. But when he died, they were destroyed. The nail that went through Christ's heel went through the serpent's skull. How? Christ's death broke the power of sin and death. When Christ gave up his spirit, the curtain that separated God from man was torn from top to bottom. No longer does the accuser have any way to separate us from God because Christ has made the way boldly back to God, open by his death. And so our accusers are vanquished at the cross. They are subdued and they are shamed. So how do we fight? My friends, we don't fight the accuser on our own ground. We take him to the cross. Show your accuser his crushed head. How do you do that? You confess your sins to God and his assurance that you are forgiven will silence the accuser. As Joshua learned in Zechariah, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. You see, the accuser is silenced because the gospel declares you have been vanquished. I like to think of the scene in the, in the Lion King where the hyenas are coming and, and about to, to attack Simba because he's all alone, and he roars, this baby little roar, Rawr! And they're not afraid at all. But in the meantime, his father, Mufasa, comes behind Simba. And when Simba roars the second time, the roar of his father overwhelms. And all of a sudden, this loud, earth-shattering roar puts the hyenas into a whimper. They tuck their tail between their legs, and they scamper away. When you bring the accuser who accuses you of your sin to the cross, you bring the roar of Christ Upon that lie, and it will whimper away with its tail between the legs. Your accusers have been vanquished because you are fully forgiven. So to conclude, the gospel fully forgives every believer. It frees us from our sins. It expunges all of our guilt. It vanquishes every accuser. When sin seeks to overpower you, preach Christ crucified to it and yourself. I hope that I am speaking to people who know Christ as Lord and Savior, but I appeal to you, if that is not true of you, if you have not come to Christ asking for his forgiveness, asking him to be your Lord and Savior, then know this, your book still sits in front of God ready to be opened on the last day. Turn and put your faith in Christ, and that book is canceled, paid in full, and expunged. 
My dear friends, beloved in Christ, let us all rest and rejoice in the good news. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen.